You are now listening to the June 11th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Nearer to My God to Thee, the sermon, and equipping the saints. First, let's begin with Nearer My God to Thee. Park from Near My God to Thee, where we look into the background of a hymn and reflect upon its meaning in a deeper way. After accepting Jesus as Savior, if we walk the path of salvation and keep our faith until the end, it would be a great blessing. Unfortunately, for many of us, instead of having a steadfast spiritual life, our faith has many ups and downs. When grace is sufficient, we are active in our spiritual life. But when sin enters our life again, we become farther from God and live as those who aren't saved. However, in the midst of this, God doesn't leave us and continues the grace of salvation. The person who wrote the hymn we'll be sharing today experienced ups and downs of faith. Let's listen to the hymn for a moment. Come thou fount of every blessing to my heart to sing thy grace Streams of mercy never ceasing Call for songs of loudest praise Teach me some melodious sonnet Sung by flame Praise His name, I'm fixed upon it, the name of God's redeeming love. love Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, to my heart to sing Thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet, sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount I'm fixed upon it, mount of God's redeeming love. This is a well-known hymn called, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Pastor Robert Robinson wrote this hymn. What circumstance in Robert's life led him to write this hymn? We'll find out through a drama. Robert Robinson was born in Norfolk, England in 1735. At the young age of eight, he lost his father and lived in poverty. When he was 14 years old, he went to London to make a living. He learned the skill of a barber and became one at the age of 18. However, he had no interest in his job. He always got drunk with his friends. One day, he was returning home after drinking with his friends. Uh, I'm really drunk tonight. I feel happy being drunk. But I don't want to go to work tomorrow. It's so frustrating. I wish I could always be drunk and live my life. 
Robert was drunk as he was returning home. Then he met an old woman in the dark street. Young man, I can tell that you will live a long life and have children and grandchildren. Therefore, don't live carelessly, but live well. What? I will live long enough to see my grandchildren. What's the use of living that long? My life is worthless. Robert coincidentally met an old woman and heard what she said. He didn't think much of the old woman's words, but he couldn't get rid of the thought. Hmm, I'm not even married yet, and she said I would have children and grandchildren. Now that I think about it, I haven't really thought about my future yet. One day I'll get married and have children. Hmm, what kind of husband and father will I be? Up until now, Robert only lived for today. But after hearing the old woman's word, he began thinking about the future. He contemplated about how he could be a good father and grandfather. As Robert Robinson was concerned about his future, he attended a revival event led by Pastor George Whitfield. That day, Pastor George Whitfield preached a sermon titled, God's Wrath is Approaching Soon. The Israelites repented of their sin and were baptized by John the Baptist at the Jordan River. During the baptism, many Pharisees and Sadducees gathered. John the Baptist shouted, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? towards them and warned about God's approaching wrath. Were they the only brood of vipers? This message is for all those sitting here who haven't repented. We must repent like those who repented their sins at the Jordan River. If we don't, we won't avoid God's approaching wrath. Robert heard a very powerful message from Pastor George Whitfield. He began to think deeply about the approaching wrath and his future. That night, he knelt before God. God, please forgive this sinner. I want to avoid your wrath. Please forgive me. That night, Robert couldn't deny God's word. He repented of his sins and became saved through the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. Afterwards, Robert studied theology to walk the path of ministry. When he was 23 years old, he preached the word and began ministry at Norfolk, where he was born. Lord, I am in all of your grace. I can't believe I'm sharing the gospel in my hometown. I spent my childhood in difficulty and poverty. Later on, you came and found me. Thank you for being a source of blessing to this world. I'm thankful for the grace of salvation of Jesus Christ. Robert gave thanks for God's grace. He wrote a poem as he meditated upon the grace and blessing from heaven. That poem became, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Robert did ministry with passion and love for Jesus Christ. Many people followed Pastor Robert and he was satisfied with his ministry life. However, as time passed, Robert began to change. I can't feel any joy and everything seems futile. Maybe it was wrong that I chose to be a pastor. I want to go back to the past when I didn't know Jesus. Pastor Robert's love and passion for the Lord was declining. He eventually quit ministry and returned to his past wild life. Hey, Robert, stop drinking. You're always drunk right now. 
<laughs> I'm not drunk yet. Don't you know me by now? <laughs> Excuse me, miss. Do I look drunk to you? No, no, you don't look drunk at all. Let's drink all we want tonight. <laughs> yes, let's enjoy tonight. Just like the prodigal son from the Bible, Robert got drunk and hung out with women every night. However, God's grace towards him didn't end. God made him realize how shameful his wild, drunken life was. Ah, uh, why am I doing this? Even though I experienced the grace of Jesus, how can I go back to my past life? God must hate how I'm living. I'm so ashamed. I can't return to God. I even did ministry and yet I've become corrupt like this. <laughs> Robert believed he could no longer look at God because of his shame. With a saddened heart, he went on vacation to avoid his reality. Hello? Are you on vacation? Yes. I'm on vacation as well. As I'm traveling, I'm realizing how beautiful this world is. I'm glad you think it's beautiful. Don't you think it's beautiful? I'm so happy that God created this beautiful world. I don't have much interest in that. It would be good for you to know God. I'm doing hymnal study these days. It's because one hymn can change a person's soul. There's a hymn that changed my life. I want to make wonderful hymns so I could share the gospel to the people. That's why I'm diligently studying hymns. I hope you will diligently study it. Can I tell you the hymn that changed my life? Aren't you curious? I'll sing it for you. Come, the fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Lord, this song... <sighs> Robert met a woman during his vacation. The hymn that changed her life was a hymn he wrote called Come, Thou Fount of Every Blessing. As he heard the woman singing, he covered his face with his hands and began to cry. <laughs> oh, Lord, I lived a wild life, but you didn't leave me until the end and faithfully led me. Lord, how can I go before you again? Lord, please accept and forgive a prodigal son like me. Pastor Robert experienced God's patience, faithfulness, and deep love and returned to the Lord. Then he studied Baptist pastoral studies again at Cambridge, England and lived for God for the rest of his life. God is faithful. He doesn't leave or give up on His chosen people. Are you in hardship because you don't feel God's presence? Do you want to return to your life before you met Jesus? God's chosen people must not do that. You may wander off for a moment, but you can't completely leave God. It's because God will not allow that. However, I'm not saying that God's chosen people can live however they want since God will save them. Knowing God who doesn't give up on us doesn't mean we get to live however we want since He will save us. No matter how difficult our situation is, Father God will not give up on us 
so we must also not give up and go forward. Even though you're going through hardship, I hope you won't give up or be infatuated with anything besides the Lord. God is the only source of blessing. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 says, He who began a good work in you will carry it out onto completion until the day of Christ Jesus. I hope we could firmly believe in God who will carry out His good work until the day of Christ Jesus. We'll end near my God to thee here. Goodbye!
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is The Heart of Pure Religion. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. All right, Mark chapter 7, a chapter that starts with an accusation about Jesus' disciples having unclean hands. So the scribes and the Pharisees were looked at as experts in pure religion before God. But in Mark chapter 7, Jesus flat out tells them that in their infatuation with what they thought was pure religion, they were missing the whole point. And this was bold. So imagine me telling LeBron James that he doesn't know anything about basketball. Or Ronaldo, that he doesn't know anything about soccer. Or what the rest of the world calls football. Imagine me telling Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates that they don't know anything about business. Or Carrie Underwood and John Legend that they don't know a thing about music. Imagine me telling The Rock he knows nothing about muscle gain. Well, in Mark chapter 7, Jesus is talking to the spiritual athletes, the spiritual elite, the spiritual bodybuilders of that day, the people everyone looked to as the goats of religion. And in this conversation, Jesus tells them they don't know anything. And in the process, Jesus totally redefines the heart of pure religion before God in a way that not only had massive implications for them then, but has massive implications for every single one of our lives today. So let me show it to you, starting in Mark chapter 7, verse 1. Follow along, either in the Bible in front of you or on the screens. The Bible says, when the Pharisees gathered to him, now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, so let's pause there for just a minute and get the setup here. So the Pharisees, were the teachers of God's law, and the scribes were some sort of official delegation that had come up from Jerusalem specifically to question Jesus. They've done this already in the book of Mark, and they're doing it again, and the picture's clear. Don't be surprised when religious people come after you. Don't be surprised when religious people try to trap you in your words or accuse you for your actions which is exactly what they do, starting in verse 2. They saw that some of the disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Now, let me pause here, make sure we understand what we just read. So the religious leaders are saying the disciples' hands were defiled, unwashed, unclean as they were eating. But this was more than just a hygiene issue, like you saw in that video This is a matter of religious ritual cleansing according to tradition. To the tradition of the elders specifically. See, over time, oral traditions had developed alongside God's word. 
And as scribes studied God's word and saw, for example, a picture of priests in Exodus 30 and 40 being commanded to wash their hands in a certain way, they would then apply those commands to everybody. And before long, everybody was washing their hands in a certain way before meals because that's what was taught by the religious leaders, even though there was never a command in God's word for everyone to do that. And there were other traditions like this. How to wash, cleanse yourself after you return from the marketplace or specific rules for washing cups and pots and other things. So the Pharisees and scribes asked Jesus, why do your disciples disobey, not walk according to the tradition of the elders? And they eat with, un- with defiled hands. And Jesus replies to them. He said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written. So Jesus went for the jugular to a group of people who were attacking, trying to trap and accuse him. He says hundreds of years ago, Isaiah talked about you hypocrites, you religious fakes. Again, these are the spiritually elite of their day. Jesus said, you're a bunch of imposters. And he quotes from Isaiah 29, verse 13, saying, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. That last phrase is so important. You're teaching as doctrines for people to follow commandments, ideas that come from men, from people. And in the process, verse 8, you leave the actual commandment of God while you hold to the traditions of men. And then Jesus starts to pour it on. He said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. And then Jesus gives another example. He says, for Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. So those are clear commands from God's word, his law. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down. So a little background here. God had clearly commanded Children to honor their father and mother, to help provide for them even. But people in that day had come up with a tradition to basically get around that. The word Corbin here is used about 80 times in the books of Leviticus, Numbers, and Ezekiel to refer to an offering that was dedicated to God. What was happening is that people who wanted to hold on to their possessions would actually dedicate them as Corbin to God, meaning that once they died, those possessions would belong to the temple, but as long as they were alive, they could enjoy and use those possessions however they wanted. So if somebody didn't want to provide for their aging parents, they would dedicate their possessions as Corbin. Then say, sorry, mom and dad, I'd share with you, but I can't because my possessions are Corbin. They are dedicated to God. And in this way, they were going around God's command to honor and help their parents. They were following a tradition that totally made void the word of God. And many such things you do, 
Jesus said these are just a couple of ways. They were so focused on their traditions and their thoughts that they were ignoring God's word. Hold on to that. Come back to it in a minute. But keep going here. Verse 14. Because by this time, Jesus is shocking everyone. He's confronting the religious leaders in a way that nobody did. And the people, including the disciples, are thinking, what is going on? And Jesus called the people to him again and said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And this is where Jesus starts to redefine pure religion before God. Going back to hand washing, Jesus says, it's not fundamentally what you do on the outside that makes you clean or defiled, unclean or undefiled. No, defilement starts with what is inside you, that which comes out of you from inside. And then, much like we see at different points in the book of Mark, Jesus brings his disciples specifically aside for a more private conversation with them, and we get some elaboration on what this means. Verse 17, when Jesus had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. What a statement. I don't know if you followed all that. But Jesus just made a revolutionary claim. He just said that spiritual transformation happens not from the outside in, but from the inside out. And realizing this changes everything. Not just about the way we look at religion, or even what we're doing in this gathering right now. But realizing this has eternal ramifications for your life, right where you're sitting, and my life, standing before you. So follow this. I want to show you five dangers of empty religion, according to Jesus. And even as I use that language, I want you to think with me. Is that possible? Is it possible for you or me to be religious, to do religious things? Whether it's going to church like we've done today or reading our Bibles like we're doing right now or all sorts of other good deeds, yet miss the whole point. According to what we just read, the answer is absolutely yes, it's possible. These were the religious leaders who went to the synagogue all the time, who studied God's word all the time, who did all kinds of good deeds. But Jesus called them hypocrites. Pretenders, fakes, hollow religionists who miss the whole point in dangerous ways. Let me show you this. Five dangers. You might write them down. First, these religious leaders elevated their thoughts and traditions above God's word. They elevated their thoughts and their traditions above God's word. 
It's pretty clear from what we just read. They had added so many rules and regulations to God's law. And in the process, those rules and regulations, their thoughts and traditions became more important to them than what God had actually said. And just think about what was driving this. This is so important to see. Let's get kind of below the surface here by elevating their thoughts and traditions above God's word. It's not like they decided, hey, we're going to do this. But they began to do this in order that they might justify their self-centeredness. Think about their approach to Corbin, these offerings. They created a way to hold on to their possessions while ignoring parents in need. Their thoughts and traditions enabled them to live for themselves instead of God's law, instead of living for the good of others. Then, second, by elevating their thoughts and traditions above God's word, they fueled their self-righteousness. They had come up with a whole set of teachings to follow that would make people righteous before God. In other words, as long as they did what they thought was right, they can be considered righteous before God. And then third, by elevating their thoughts and traditions above God's word, they serve their self-interests. Think about these religious leaders and their teachings on ritual washings. They created a whole religious system that was dependent on getting additional rules from them, not from God's word. And if what Jesus was saying was true, that righteousness is found in following God's word, not the teachings of religious leaders, then these guys were out of a job. Now, All of this can seem pretty far removed from us. We don't have teachings about Corbin or ritual washings today. But let me give you at least a couple of examples of this danger in more recent history. Let's think about the dangers of empty religion. In the last couple of centuries in our country, and danger is the right word, think religious people going to church weekly reading their Bibles daily, and doing all sorts of good religious things, all while seeing people with black skin as less than them. For years, religious people subjecting other people to slavery and abuse and buying and selling them as property, only to be followed by years of segregating and demeaning and disadvantaging them only to be followed by years of denying these disparities. How is that possible? Well, for many reasons, and I certainly don't want to oversimplify the past or the present, but at least part of the problem involves religious people and their religious leaders holding so tightly to their thoughts and traditions in ways that justified self-centeredness fueled self-righteousness, and served self-interest to the detriment of generations of people made in the image of God. The danger of empty religion. Or let's take another example. God has given us a clear command, a great commission that we say at the end of all of our gatherings to make disciples of all the nations, of all the people groups of the world. Jesus said, This is what I am leaving you on this earth to do. And God has given Christians and churches across our country's landscape billions upon billions of dollars to do it. Yet we spend a minute percentage, 
far less than 1% of our collective resources on getting the gospel to unreached nations, on doing what Jesus clearly told us to do. Why could it be that one of the reasons, if not the primary reason, is because we've created an entire religious system, a picture of the church in our country that justifies self-centeredness, So that even when we give leftover money in our churches, we use most of that money on making church comfortable for us in ways that fuel self-righteousness as we serve self-interest, practically defining the good Christian life as a safe spin on the American dream, coasting it out here while we turn a deaf ear to billions of people on their way to an eternal hell who've never even heard the good news of how they can go to heaven. And we have convinced ourselves this is Christianity. The danger of empty religion when thoughts and traditions focused on making life great in our nation trump Jesus' command to make his name great in all nations. Throughout the rest of the book of Mark, we're going to see These Pharisees and scribes, again and again and again, arguing with Jesus as soon as the next chapter in Mark chapter 8, and eventually plotting and implementing a plan to kill Jesus, all while thinking they were in the right. Which leads to the fourth danger here. They ultimately thought they could make themselves clean. They could make themselves right. These religious leaders created a whole way of thinking and a pattern of living that they thought would make them okay before a holy God. Let me say that again, just to make sure you don't miss it. These religious leaders created a whole way of thinking and pattern of living that they thought would make them okay before a holy God. And I repeat that because this leads right into the fifth danger and I believe it's the most important one. So don't miss it. By the end of this story, we have a pretty negative impression of these religious leaders. And for good reason. They elevated their thoughts and traditions above God's word in ways that fueled self-centeredness and self-righteousness and self-interest. They performed religious actions for themselves with hearts that are far from God. They're pointing out uncleanness in others that they refuse to see them in themselves. And despite all their wickedness, they thought they could make themselves clean. But all of that leads to this last danger that we need to see about these religious leaders. And here it is. We are them. We are them. By we, I mean every single one of us in this gathering today. You, right where you're sitting right now. Me, all of us. We all elevate our thoughts and our traditions above God's word. This is actually the essence of sin in all of us. We all think our ways are better than God's word. This is the first sin ever in the world. God, I know what tree to eat from, no matter what you say. 
my thoughts are better than your word. We all assert our ways over God's word. It looks different in each of our lives, but we do this in ways that fuel our self-centeredness, self-righteousness, self-interest. And we can all perform monotonous religious actions apart from authentic spiritual affection. We all have the ability, a keen ability, to see things in others that we refuse to see in ourselves. And we can all create a way of thinking and a pattern of living that makes us think we're okay before God. But the clear point of Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 23, is that it doesn't work. The point of Mark 7 is that the people who tried the hardest and did the best, who were the most respected, spiritually elite athletes of their day, couldn't do it. Which means, so follow this, because this is where this passage comes directly into your seat, your mind, your heart. What we don't need then are all of our attempts to clean our hands. Jesus said, understand this, like get this. It's not what goes into a person from outside that defiles him. You can't make yourself clean on the outside, no matter how many times you wash your hands. These Pharisees and scribes were so focused on the outside that they were completely bypassing the heart. And we can do the same thing. Again, it looks different in each of our lives. But just think about all of our individual efforts on the outside to be happy, good, right, successful through work, education, appearance, money, possessions, status, religion. We can do everything we can, but our problem is deeper than any of those things can solve. Our problem is at the core, deep down inside, all of us are unclean before a holy God. So what we don't need are our relentless attempts to clean our hands. What we desperately need is Jesus to change our hearts. From within, in our hearts, and Jesus lists all kinds of sin here in Mark 7. And his point is, all these things proceed from the heart. Like evil thoughts come from an evil heart. Sexual immorality proceeds from a sinful heart. Theft comes from a heart of greed, a heart that is not content in what you rightfully have. Murder is an attitude of the heart before physical action. And we could keep going. Adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. These are all heart issues that start within. And no matter how many times you wash your hands on the outside, you can't make yourself clean on the inside. But good news. 
This is why Jesus came. This is what God promised centuries before Jesus came. God said through Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. God says, I will make you clean. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is revolutionary. Stop focusing on the outside, on making yourself right. No, God says, if only you will let me, I will. See how it says, I will over and over and over again. I will do this work deep down inside of you. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you that wants to walk in, obey my rules and my statutes, my word. How is that possible? How do we get a new heart? Only through Jesus. Only through the one who has lived a life of no sin, no uncleanness, no defilement. And then, though he had no sin or defilement in him for which to die, he chose to die on a cross to pay the price for our defilement. And then he rose from the grave in victory over death so that anyone, anywhere, no matter what defilement you have in your heart, anyone who confesses their sinfulness, and turns from their attempts to make themselves right, and who trusts in Jesus to make them right, to change your heart from the inside out. God himself will forgive, cleanse you of all your sin. God himself will fill you with his spirit and enable you from the inside out to experience eternal life with him. This is the gospel. This is why the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, in Jesus, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. Has this happened to you? Have you let Jesus make you a new creation? Have you trusted Jesus to change you from the inside out? If not, I invite you to experience that miracle today in your life now and for all of eternity depends on that miracle happening in your heart. Not on you being religious, not on you making yourself right, good, happy, successful on the outside, but on trusting Jesus to totally transform you from the inside out. And then for all who have trusted in Jesus in this way, let's live this out from the inside out, not in lives of empty religion with all its dangers, but in pure religion with all its blessings. Let's meditate on and memorize and study and digest God's word so that it is elevated far above all our thoughts and traditions and opinions and convictions. 
Let's turn aside from all of our tendencies to justify, fuel, serve our ways instead of obeying God's word. And let's worship him with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. And let's love our neighbors as ourselves, caring for the poor and the oppressed and the disadvantaged and displaced and the orphan and the widow and many others in need as we make disciples of all the nations, knowing this is what our God calls pure and undefiled religion. Will you bow your heads with me? I asked you that question just a moment ago, and I want to ask it again, right where you're sitting, before God. Have you experienced the miracle of becoming a new creation, received a new heart through faith in Jesus as the Savior who died for your son and who rose from the dead and reigns as Lord over your life? If the answer to that question is not a resounding yes in your heart, then I invite you right now to experience the miracle by faith, just to say to God, God, I trust. While I have sinned against you, you love me. And you desire to cleanse me of all my sin to give me a new heart. So I want it today. Cleanse me. Forgive me my sin. Fill me with your spirit, with your heart. Today I put my trust in Jesus, Savior and Lord, as my life. And the Bible says all who call the name of Jesus in this way will be saved from all your sin. Brought into the family of God, filled with his spirit, given a new heart. God, we praise you for this miracle. And we confess our need for it, that we can't make ourselves clean, that we can't make ourselves right before you, we can't make ourselves happy, good, this or that, apart from your grace in our lives. We praise you for making this miracle possible. A miracle of a new heart, new creation possible for us. And so for all who have experienced this miracle, we pray, keep us from empty religion and all of its dangers. Keep us from elevating anything in our minds, in our traditions, in our Opinions or convictions above your word. May your word be supreme in our hearts, in our lives, in our families, in your church. We pray for true spiritual affection, God. We don't want to waste our Sundays together, our lives on monotonous religious motion. God, we pray, ignite our spiritual affection for you. 
in deeper and deeper and deeper ways. Now in the days ahead, in ways that overflow into extravagant love for you and extravagant love for our neighbors in need around us. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name, the one who alone can change our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen.
You can listen to Heart and Soul Gospel Broadcasts through apps or podcasts on your smartphone. If you're an iPhone user, go to the App Store and download Heart and Soul. If you possess an Android phone, you can download it in the Play Store in the same way. Podcast users can download by searching Heart and Soul Broadcasts in the search box. It also provides you with distinct broadcasts for children's program. By searching Heart and Soul Kids in the podcast, you can directly log on to the broadcast for children's program. For more information, please call and contact the office at 602-866-8999. The following program is called Equipping the Saints, provided by ETS Ministry. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. So Paul's apostleship first was for the faith of those chosen, but there's another purpose in our text. Again, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God, and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. Now, as I shared earlier, I believe grammatically this term kata, or this term which speaks of this purpose, applies to this second statement also. What do I mean? Paul was made an apostle to bring about the faith of the chosen, and for the purpose of bringing about the knowledge of the truth. Now, this term knowledge, as we see in our text, is epinosis, and the word speaks of a full or true knowledge. It's often translated in Scripture in the context of a relationship with Christ. What does he mean here by this term knowledge of the truth? We need to review what biblical truth is. The word true here is the Greek word aletheos. Aletheia always speaks to that which is valid, reliable, that which is real, that which is genuine, In Scripture, it always speaks of truth as opposed to that which is false. And we need to recognize, first of all, that God's Word is declared to be truth. Psalm 119, 142, Thy righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and thy law is truth. Psalm 119, 151, Thou art near, O Lord, and all thy commandments are truth. Psalm 119, 60, The sum of thy word is truth. As the Lord Jesus prayed to the Father in his high priestly prayer. He said, sanctify them in thy word, John 17. Thy word is truth. That's how we're set apart, through the word. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, we saw it earlier. But we should always give thanks to God for you, beloved brethren, by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Faith in what God said. Ephesians 1.13, he calls it the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Colossians 1.3-6, he talks about the gospel as the word of truth, the gospel. 2 Timothy 2.14-15, and 15, Timothy is exhorted to handle accurately the word of truth. 2 Timothy 4.1, instead of the preaching of the word, a time will come when people, they'll turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to miss. And that time's here, folks. God's word is true, but God's word points to God and God is true. We see all throughout scripture that God is true. 
I'm not going to read the verses for you, but ultimately we see Jesus declares this of himself. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. John 1:14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Paul exhorts the Ephesians in chapter 4 that the truth is in Jesus. God is characterized by truth. He is true, and what he says is true. And Paul's apostleship was to bring about faith of the chosen and the knowledge of the truth. True relational knowledge of the living Lord via his revealed words. Now, often the term knowledge of the truth, as we see in our passage here, is synonymous with coming to faith. I'll read a couple passages. 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 to 7. God our Savior, who desires all men to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's coming to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 2.24, as Lord's bondservant is exhorted not to be quarrelsome, he points out that God might grant them repentance, which leads to the knowledge of the truth. Same phrase. False teachers, 2 Timothy 3.7, are always learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. They're never able to come to a true knowledge concerning Christ. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 if we go on sinning willfully, if you live a life of willful sin after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice. You've heard the truth concerning Christ. You reject that. You go on sinning. There's nothing else but judgment coming your way. Knowledge of the truth synonymous with coming to faith in Christ. And it's clear from Scripture that intimately knowing this truth concerning Christ is synonymous with knowing Christ. The Apostle Paul said that the Lord Jesus Christ leads us in his triumph, 2 Corinthians 2.14, and manifests through us, speaking of the Apostles, the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him. Sweet aroma of the knowledge of him. And then later on he says, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Paul prayed for a revelation and wisdom in the knowledge of him, Ephesians chapter 1. We saw in Ephesians 4 the goal, the knowledge of the Son of God. And then in Second Peter chapter 1, we see this encapsulated together, the truth of God and the knowledge of Christ. Second Peter chapter 1, you can turn there with me. Wonderful, wonderful passage. Peter writes, verse 2, chapter 1, Second Peter, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in what context? In the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful seeing that his divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And through what means? Through the true knowledge of him. It's through the knowledge of Christ, of our relationship with Christ, that God produces godliness in us. Who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. This is his word. In order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Wonderful, wonderful truth that God has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Christ. Folks, I believe this phrase that Paul uses, the knowledge of the truth back in our Titus passage, is synonymous with this phrase, basically the knowledge of Christ. 
Now, it's important to realize that true knowledge, that the word of God brings about faith in Christ, that the word of God brings about the true knowledge of Christ, right? Faith in Christ, the true knowledge of Christ. But this true knowledge, if it is truly a right relationship with God, will produce something. And Paul needs to qualify this because many people say they know the Lord. Many people say they know Christ. And he says back in chapter 1, Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. When one is changed by the word of Christ, there is fruit, there is godliness. It is according to godliness. Why does Paul add this little phrase, which is according to godliness? He's qualifying what type of knowledge he's speaking of. And folks, there are those who believe they know Christ, as I've shared, who do not truly know him. They haven't come to a true knowledge of the truth as evidenced by their deeds and the fruit of their lives. Jesus would say, not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And he actually says to those same people, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. He says, I never knew you. They thought they knew him, but their deeds betrayed that knowledge. And by contrast, true knowledge of Christ is going to produce fruit. Look down again, Titus chapter 2, and we're going to see that true knowledge of Christ produces fruit. For the grace of God, Titus 2.11, has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. God's grace has appeared. Now, what is God's grace instructing us to do now? Instructing us to deny ungodliness, that say no to ungodliness, and worldly desires, that's our desires versus God's desires, and then to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. God has saved us unto righteousness, not unrighteousness. God has saved us to make us more like Christ, not to be ungodly, but to be godly. And the knowledge of the truth, true knowledge, epinosis of the truth, is according to godliness. So then Paul is saying that he was made an apostle to bring about the faith of the chosen and the knowledge of the truth, a true relationship with Christ, which produces the fruit of true godliness. And some of you say you know the Lord today, but the fruit of your lives betray such statements. You practice sin, and Christ doesn't know you. And unless you repent of your sin and believe in Christ, you will not be saved, and thus you stand on the precipice of eternal judgment, a terrifying expectation of judgment. True saving knowledge of Christ is going to produce godliness. A good tree produces good fruit. Bad trees produce bad fruit. What about those of us who believe very simply The fruit of our life is an evidence that God's word is at work in us. So then we see in this little short portion, and we're going to look at the hope we have that Paul based his apostleship on, the hope we have in Christ. But in this very short portion, we see in summary that Paul was called an apostle for two reasons, to bring about the faith of those chosen and the knowledge of the truth concerning Christ, which brings about and produces godliness or Christ-likeness. Very simply, Paul brought forth the word of God that was revealed to him, and it is the word of God that produces Christ's likeness in us as we trust him. It is the word of God concerning Christ 
the knowledge of him which produces this godly character in us. What are the applications for us? Well, first of all, if you're living a life ultimately that is not according to godliness, then maybe you don't know the Lord truly. And I'm not talking about the wretched sins that we all point out in other people's lives. I'm talking about not trusting the Lord. I'm talking about leaning on your own understanding. I'm talking about trusting in wisdom that is earthly, natural, and demonic. I'm talking about being the Lord of your own lives. If your life hasn't been changed by Christ, you don't know Christ. You don't know Christ. You say it all you want that you know Christ, but if you haven't been changed, you don't know. And I beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God, to repent of your sin and trust Christ. Examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine your lives. Do you live your life making your own decisions, plowing along your own way, consulting yourself and everything? Or are you saying in your heart of hearts, not my will, but thy will be done. I want to do what you say. I want to obey your word. I want to do what you say. Examine yourselves. See if you're in the faith. What are the applications for those of us? And I pray all of us are in his flock. The Lord knows those who are his. And he says, let those who name the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. What about for us? It is the word of God as revealed by the apostles and prophets that God uses to bring about faith in Christ, sanctifying faith and saving faith. Our faith is not based on our experiences. Our faith is not based on anything other than Christ as revealed in his word. And if you want to trust Jesus more, confess your sin and get into his word. I find it all the time that when I'm not trusting Christ, it's when I'm so slowly drifted from thinking about what he said and meditating on his word. And the goal of our faith is the true knowledge of Christ, which produces his likeness in us. We need to appreciate and accept the word for what it really is, the word of God. Job writes this in his affliction. And this is, most people in their affliction, you know, are writing everybody else to comfort them in their affliction. And Job writes this. Job 23, 12. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Does that describe you? Psalmist wrote, I rejoice at thy word as one who finds great spoil. Peter wrote, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The Apostle Paul told Timothy that the church is the pillar and support of the truth. Ask yourself, have you been tempted to turn away from the pure milk of the word? You know, our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil are working all the time. Unfortunately, through many fake believers or fellow believers, to degrade in your mind the sufficiency of the word alone to perform God's work in you. There are churches left and right everywhere who believe that there are ways to do church other than what God has ordained in his word. Folks, we need to repent of trusting in ourselves, and then we need to go to the word of God. God's word is totally sufficient for every area of your life, every area of your life, because it contains the word concerning an all-sufficient Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? If you do, be encouraged, because you're on the right track. Keep trusting, obeying, and proclaiming. God is with you and will powerfully work through you. 
Jesus said, man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.